Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you all this morning. Glad that we can keep moving on Exodus. Today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. We have finally reached the 10th plague. Yes, we are here, and it's November. So just a quick note that if you visit stmichael.org rbs, you can see all of our old studies and you can find our podcast. And as we look forward to our schedule, next week we are off for Thanksgiving. And so even though you may want to come here the day before Thanksgiving, don't. The church will be closed up. And so I will see you in two weeks for our next lesson as we continue on in chapter 13 and beyond. So just make a note, no study next week, and then we'll be back together. And when we're back together after Thanksgiving, it's already Advent. And so for those of you who are here at St. Michael regularly, I hope you will take advantage of our Advent seasonal offerings. For those of you who join us online, we're going to be live streaming a bunch of stuff. If you, to kick off our Advent season, on November 28th at 5.30 p.m., we're going to have our Advent Festival. And the Advent Festival used to be all children, it was shoes in the hallways and little coins and candy, and it was very sweet. We've expanded the Advent Festival. We still have a really great little evening prayer moment that is addressing children specifically, but after that evening prayer, which is really only 20, 25 minutes, we go out into the garden cloister, and you can make your own Advent wreath that you can then take home. And it's really nice. We get trimmings of all kinds, lots of evergreens and magnolias and things like that. And so we put them out on the tables, and you can actually build your own wreath with greenery and the candles and take it home. And we had a bunch of people come. You know, it's been two years since we've actually been able to do this in person. And we did it for the first time back then in 2019, and people loved it. And so whether you have children or not, please come to the Advent Festival. It's a great way to kick off the season. And then on December 5th, we have our Advent Lessons and Carol service at 11 a.m., and we've got our New York Polyphony concert, which is our St. Michael Presents concert that night on the 5th. And then we've got Christmas lessons and carols the Sunday before Christmas. Lots of good stuff. So I hope you will plug in and do that in our season of Advent. Let me see. Oh, the other, one other thing I wanted to make a note of for those of you who join us in person, the theater door that is by the West parking lot is now going to be unlocked on Wednesdays. And so if you can't navigate stairs, then coming around to the chapel door is still the best path. But if stairs aren't a problem, that's a whole lot faster to come in that door to get to the chapel. And so I am not entirely sure why it took us this long to think of that. Um, so now the door will be open on Wednesdays to make it easier for you all. All right, let's have a prayer. Thank you. Yes, we are going to have Advent podcasts. So every day during the week, the clergy will be back with podcasts during Advent um, talking about preparation. Advent you know, for those of you who have been in liturgical churches for a long time, Advent and Lent are often treated similarly, and I like to differentiate them. Lent is penitential, and Advent is preparatory, and so we are preparing in Advent. And so even though some of you should be penitential all the time, um, Advent is really an opportunity for us to prepare for Christmas, and that's going to be the theme for this season for all of the clergy podcasts that go each morning during the week the sermon series on the Sundays, and more. So yes, um, there is a link on our webpage. If you go to stmichael.org, there's a button that says Advent Hub, and that tells you everything you need to know about all of our concerts and special services and podcasts, meditation books, and more. So we got you covered this Advent. Let's have a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. 
Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks. Give you thanks for the gift of this life. Give you thanks for the love that surrounds us on all sides. Especially this week, as we prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving Day, may we put our hearts and minds in your hands. Open ourselves up to the gratitude that should anchor and root our identities. That as we approach next week, whether we will be in a small group or a big old group, and whether we're around people that we really love or people that we, eh, you know, have to be around once a year, that we can be grateful. Grateful to be able to celebrate your love for us and our ability to love others in return. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I wrote a Thanksgiving prayer this year that we're going to send out over email to the parish. Um, and I'm, I always want to include something like, for those we love and for those we have to spend time with anyway, or something like that. But I don't feel like that's quite appropriate, so it's not there this year. Okay, here we go. We're going to jump right in to the 10th plague. We are here. Chapter 12, verse 28. Let's go. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, remember last week, the Passover preparations, and at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. We will pause. Oh, I should have said, we have three parts to today's lesson. We've got the actual tenth plague, the instructions for Passover, and then the exodus, the actual exodus. And so we're going to start there with the 10th plague. So nobody can actually read this plague. I'm going to go out on a limb and say nobody's going to read this plague and find it anything but tragic. This, this is not a moment to celebrate. We have people dying, Egyptian firstborns, even down to the animals, dying. And we can, I think, safely assume that the great majority of those who have died, if not all of them, are really innocent of all of this. We've come to a place in this story where nine opportunities have been missed for Pharaoh to actually change his mind, for Pharaoh to respond to Yahweh, to let the Israelites go. And nine times, Pharaoh has resisted. Now we are in this 10th moment. And this 10th plague is meant to emphasize that the Egyptians are, in a sense, victims of Pharaoh's mistakes and Pharaoh's ignorance. You know, up to this point, Egypt has actually benefited mightily by the wisdom of their leaders. Egypt is, at this point in time, incredibly wealthy. And we've touched on this for many different ways. But if we go back to why Joseph came to Egypt in the first place, Joseph is there, he has a dream, he understands that famine is coming. And so the leaders of Egypt at the time respond to Joseph's warnings very shrewdly. They begin to store up all of their surplus grain so that when the famine comes, they're able to sell all of their grain to all of the groups surrounding Egypt who are starving. And when they come to Egypt, they'll give Egypt anything they want. Because what's the alternative? They die of starvation. And so Egypt just rakes it in, hand over fist, money, jewels, 
Um, they likely create um, allies with different tribes. They probably get land. They're able to do incredible things. Fast forward hundreds of years, and Egypt has continued to amass this power. At this point in time, Pharaoh is still responsible for the outcomes of his decisions, responsible for the welfare of the people who live there. Can you imagine if Pharaoh had heard 400 years earlier from Joseph that a famine was coming and decided to ignore the warning? What would have happened? But instead, Pharaoh made a smart decision. Fast forward to this point in time, and we've seen Pharaoh make a bad decision over and over and over again. And the people have suffered. This 10th plague is really meant to bring Pharaoh to his knees. Now, we've mentioned in here multiple times, it is problematic that Pharaoh has, through his own ignorance or through his own pride, who knows, resisted the call to free the Israelites such that these innocents are now killed. I've not gotten any specific questions from you all about this, which is fine, but I do hope that you've rolled around the problem that this sort of presents. God's victory comes at a very, very steep price. And although from a Jewish perspective, there might be cheering as they leave Egypt, we are thousands of years removed from this. And I do think that we can look at this story, and although we can celebrate that the Israelites are now free, sure, it does not mean that we ignore the tragedy of this mass killing and how the Israelites ultimately got free. I think that we can all understand being victims of leadership and of leadership failures. We have likely all either been a leader who has failed or we have been impacted negatively by a leader who has failed. And I'm not talking about like macro global politics. I'm talking about small style things, whether that's in a company or that's a friend or a neighbor or a family member, you name it. It's difficult to be in positions of leadership and not be swept away with the power and the authority. Our world does not balance the leadership and decisiveness that leaders need to have with maintaining a rootedness and humility very well. Most of the time, if someone has gotten themselves into a position of leadership, they've gotten themselves into that position because they are, in a sense, very comfortable using their strength. And as that strength is validated over and over again, they become prideful. And that pride can help essentially put them in a place where they are unable to then see the writing on the wall. They are unable to see their own weakness. They're unable to see that perhaps a good decision that they don't want to make is the right decision to make. And so I just offer all of that because I do think that we have come to a point in our study where we can't simply laugh at the silliness of a plague. 
and we can't simply celebrate that the Israelites will be released. It's complex. And the way that we consider this, I think, should also reflect the complexity. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up. Go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone. And bring a blessing on me too. Pharaoh's response here is very swift and clear. Finally, he has been broken. Hey, Bub, will you come close these doors? Thank you. His response is quick. He is defeated and he is disgusted, and he wants the Israelites to go away now. So interestingly, Pharaoh acknowledges the power of Yahweh here in a way that perhaps he has not since, and that is that he asks Moses and Aaron to bring a blessing on him. That's very interesting. Pharaoh has a few times kind of acknowledged that, that Yahweh is strong, but in this moment, in his brokenness, he actually asks Moses and Aaron to go bring a blessing on him too. And so what we have from the storyteller's perspective is important to note that for the Jewish people, this is a moment in which they're not overly concerned with who lived or died. They're much more concerned about who wins. Yahweh has won. Pharaoh, by asking for Yahweh's blessing, has acknowledged Yahweh's power, Yahweh's omnipotence, Yahweh's control, and now Yahweh has won. And I'm just going to pause there to see if there are any thoughts or questions based on this opening section before we get into a bit more about Passover itself. Sure. Good question. So the question is, when it comes to who is the leader and who is responsible for the decision-making, doesn't God have some culpability because God hardened Pharaoh's heart? So I've mentioned that a few times where, in a sense, the way the storyteller tells the story is God has created a problem that then God solves by killing the firstborn. Another way to turn that crystal is to not read God's control of Pharaoh quite as explicitly as that. When we talk about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, I mentioned before that in the ancient world, heart was not the feeling center like it means for us. It's much more like gut. And so when the writers say Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it's almost like his resolve was hardened. And so the implication there has a lot more to do with pride and power than it does emotion. And so 
we might hear Pharaoh's heart was hardened and we think, gosh, he's being mean or something to that effect. Because heart for us is rooted in that, whether you're loving or you're mean or something like that. Really what that's saying in the Hebrew, I think more clearly implied, is that Pharaoh's leadership, his resolve for his role in all of this was strengthened. Now, did God do that? Did Pharaoh do that? We've noted before that in the first nine plagues, there are three different ways that that is articulated. And so, although some plagues say God did that, some plagues say Pharaoh did that. And so, there's, in a sense, this, I have to think, intentional balance. When you've got nine plagues, and there are three different ways that Pharaoh is described as being hardened, and there are three of each of those ways, that seems a little too coincidental. I think the storyteller is actually taking an idea and dividing it into thirds so that, in a sense, the complexity of Pharaoh's response is acknowledged. Was God a part of that? Sure, God's present in that moment. But was Pharaoh actually the one who ultimately has to own his actions? Yes, there's that too. And I don't think we can say it's one thing or the other. That resolve, though, really in the Hebrew is rooted in self-identity. And I say pride. I don't want it to be too shallow and cheap. All of us have, I, I might say ego, in the strictest psychological sense. We, are all, we all have ego. And we balance our ego with the other forms, you know, the id or the superego or those other things. We are all balancing our self-image, the decisions that we make with how they impact others how we relate to the world, what is in our self-interest, but what is also in the interest of others, there's always this balancing act that happens, which is ultimately why being human is so messy. We are never fully right, and we are rarely, if ever, fully wrong. It's a sliding scale, and we're a little more right than wrong, or we're a little more wrong than right, and of course we can slide, and I do think that as communities. Hmm. One of the challenges right now, oh, Kristen, you're going to get me in trouble. Um, one of the challenges I think right now in our world is that we have put an inordinate amount of weight on individual understanding or experience. I think there is a problem when we let the idea of my truth and your truth go too far. Because what that does is it undermines community. As Christians, and I could talk to you about what I think of that, but as Christians, we are actually called into community. I've said, you've heard me say it a hundred times, that it's not a good idea to be Christian on your own. I mean. Can you? Maybe, maybe. But Jesus says very clearly, when two or more are gathered together, I'm there amongst them. Jesus doesn't say, when you pray on your own, I'm there. When two or more are there. So there is now, could that be just a kind of an unintentional phrasing? Maybe. But I do think that Jesus always sent disciples out two by two. 
Jesus called people together into a group. Jesus taught in a group. Jesus said when two or more are gathered in a group, there's very little, if any, clear evidence of individualism in Christianity. It is communal and it is relational. In our modern world, part of where we are all rubbing against conflict right now is that we have essentially said every person gets their own opinion about everything. And it is important that every person is honored, yes. But there is a point at which honoring individualism and allowing individualism to undermine community breaks. And as a community, we as individuals, as part of a community, actually give up a little bit to be part of that community. And for me, that is that great check on our ego. That is a humility that anchors us, that allows God in. If we're all ego, there's no room for God. And so being a part of a community necessarily means that our ego is checked regularly that we have to give up something regularly. And when we check that, and when we allow ourselves to not be the center of our world, we make space for God. Part of where we are struggling as a community right now is that we've kind of gone down this path of, I like to tell my children all the time that by definition, most people aren't special. Yeah, duh. I mean, if everyone's special, no one's special. That's not how that works. That's not what the word means. Um, and so you can say you are wonderfully made, but actually to somehow be duped into believing that you are genuinely exceptional is problematic for our entire community because it actually fluffs up the ego and it fills out the ego. That's a very pretty ringtone. It fluffs up the ego so much so that then we begin to have these conflicts where people can't hear each other and can't respect each other. And I am now just off on a slippery slope, so I will stop. Yes? Could it also be, or is that, that God knew what had to happen in order to achieve the exodus? Because can you imagine, Moses goes down, tells Pharaoh what my people got to go. Okay. What a huge economic disruption that would have been instantaneously. And what would the people of Egypt have done to Pharaoh if he had paid immediately? Well, thank you, Howard, for bringing us back to our Bible study. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was just sort of like, we are still studying the Bible here. Um, so the, the question being, in a sense, is, there, is the story told, do these events happen because it was simply necessary that Pharaoh would never have in that position of strength agreed to let his workforce go. Of course. I, I am not, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that it's, I think the point that I hear you making is that Pharaoh kind of needed to have some political cover. Pharaoh now is a victim, a victim of God's strength and power. The Israelites, God, beat 
Pharaoh's God. Pharaoh has been, has become a victim. And so in that political structure or the social structure, Pharaoh's in a sense not made a bad decision. He made the only decision he could. And so he was backed into a corner between a rock and a hard place. He just did the only thing left to do. And so for him, he's almost kind of covered because who would not read the story and say Pharaoh should let the people go at this point? It is time now, let them go. And so he just makes a sensible decision. Had he done that when Moses showed up and asked, he would have been seen as weak, stupid. He would have set his whole economy on fire, like you said. Now, even though it's way worse than it would have been had he made that decision earlier, in the court of public opinion in Egypt, we have to imagine that the people were like, about time, you know, let them go. He could have saved a huge amount of strife had he just decided that at the beginning, but the people would not have thought that. There's politics all over the place, and we're talking about a heavy, heavy political reality right here. We are, yeah, I have more to say about that later, but I'm gonna jump out of this section if I keep going. What else? Yes, ma'am. Hmm. So we've got God killing just before we receive the Ten Commandments that say thou shalt not kill. I have to acknowledge that that commandment could be kill or murder, depending on which list you read. And although that kind of sounds like the same thing, not really because that is a point at which people who articulate just war theory find a very important distinction. Murder is very different than a killing, especially if it's a righteous killing, especially if it's a killing that defends others from being hurt. There is a lot of ethics that have been done that splits that word. And so that's not for today, we'll get there. But just to acknowledge that we say thou shalt not kill, it could be thou shalt not murder. So if it's thou shalt not kill, Pharaoh here is killing. That seems obviously contradictory. If it's thou shalt not murder, and we can create a scenario in which killing is actually justified in a defensive position, then is Pharaoh actually justified in a killing in order to save his chosen people? I'm sorry, is Yahweh justified in a killing in order to save his chosen people? That's a stretch, I'm just saying. But when it comes to ethics and morality, it is a reasonable argument to be made even if we disagree. Hmm, that's good. We'll do more of that, I promise, in a few, week, in a few weeks. Yes. Chris, what is the going back to the Hebrew written? I mean, these are 
Yes. The original in Hebrew for what? For oh, yes. Okay, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That's a, sorry, that's a distraction. Um, we will get there when we do the commandments. We're going to do the commandments in here. And so I'd rather not spend the time today. The, the, the quick answer to your question is in Hebrew, it could mean either. And so, and the commandments are listed slightly differently in different places. So if we're talking about the very first occurrence of the commandments in scripture, chronologically, a certain word is used. If we talk about when it is relisted later as part of the Jewish legal structure, a different word is used. So that's, that's part of the problem is that we don't have a single list of commandments. We have multiple lists of commandments. And so just Many denominations, many Christian denominations, have just picked one. And so when you were in Sunday school learning about the commandments, you had to pick one. And so what order are they in and what words are used? It's one list or another. We will get there. I promise. Yes? Ah. Someone online asked if there's historic record of the actual plagues and deaths. And the answer is not in Egypt. We do not have record of this plague anywhere outside the Bible. I should say we have not discovered record of this plague outside of the Bible. It is a very odd thing. If we're honest, Egypt kept good records. They tacked up stories about people on obelisks and walls and temples and all over the place. We certainly have not discovered everything that Egypt did, but to imagine that this moment was not recorded is a stunner because it's gigantic and significant. And you might argue it's embarrassing. And so Egypt wouldn't have said, remember when we were defeated by our slaves, right? I mean, that's not exactly the great thing to put on one's obelisk. But gosh, somewhere, and it's nowhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, which is one of the reasons why, could it have been destroyed? Of course. I mean, the library was destroyed. There's probably plenty of things buried in places that we've not yet discovered, which is why the qualification is we've never discovered anything that references these plagues outside of the Bible. Because, I mean, jump back 100 years ago and think about all of the things we had not yet discovered. So could it be discovered in the future? Of course. It has not yet been. Well, that was very energetic. I love that. Okay. Let's keep going. Section two. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Passover itself. It is interesting, and I'm actually not going to read anything from the Bible for this second section. I simply want to note the institution of the Passover comes in multiple different places. We know that prior to the plague itself, what we did last week, there are instructions Moses receives about how to prepare for that Passover moment, how to actually protect the Israelites 
so that they are passed over by God as the firstborn are being killed. I think it would be interesting for us to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites, remembering that they came to Egypt when Jacob's whole family came in under Joseph's guidance and protection. They've stayed there and they've been enslaved there for 400 years. Then Moses and Aaron show up and say, guess what? God is back and we're going to be released. Super. That sounds good, right? Then they go and they ask Pharaoh and Pharaoh says no. And then remember they do the sticks and the snakes and the whatever, then you get the blood and it goes on and on. Over and over and over again. And remember for us, these plagues likely are happening over months and months of time. This is not as if it's 10 straight days. So there's plenty of time for the people to talk and for the gossip to happen and for them to get mad and to stay mad. Moses has come and said, hey, we're going to get out of here. Over and over and over again. Plague after plague after plague. And remember, some of those plagues were bad. Some were kind of stupid, like I still think the frogs are stupid, but some of those plagues were bad. People would have died. People would have starved. Then Moses, after failing nine times, says, you know what now we need to do? You need to hike up all your robes into your underpants, and you need to put blood over your front door and you need to eat unleavened bread. Gross. Who wants to eat unleavened bread? I'd rather not eat. And so he's like, do all these things, and then we're going to go. If you were the Israelites, what would you have done? I would have been like, Moses, get out of my face. You know, this is, at what point will we stop listening to you? It's like hope and then crash and hope and crash. And it's up and down and up and down and up nine times. And still what we have in this story is the institution of what becomes just about the most significant moment in Jewish history. And the people do it before the actual event of the Passover. That's very interesting. It obviously indicates that this story is being written in hindsight, and we of course know that, hundreds and hundreds of years later. It gives the Israelites a whole lot of credit for trusting in God again. I want us to enter into this moment personally. How often have we been in a situation where we know something needs to change? and we hope for that change. Maybe we even try to do something to act on a desire for change only to be thwarted, only to miss or fall or trip or get hurt again. Keeping that hopefulness is not easy. We have all been at some point threatened, in pain, scared, sad, only to hear some nice person Tell us it's going to be okay. Sometimes it's helpful, and sometimes it's much more frustrating when you really just want to be mad or sad or hurt. I am told all, I had to learn, 
I think I've learned most of the time, although I still make the, same, make the mistake occasionally, that I don't have to fix problems when people bring them to me. I want to fix things. And so I had to start, I, I will never forget going to, I think I've said this in a sermon before, when I was first working as a chaplain in the hospital, I wasn't even ordained. I could not possibly make sense of sitting with people as loved ones were dying because I couldn't do anything. And as a 20, I mean, gosh, I was like 23. So as a 23 year old, you know, I wanted to do something. And of course, I'm not a physician. I can't do chest compressions or prescribe you drugs or something. And I would just sit with people and they would be sad and they would tell me that their loved one was dying. And I'd be like, and I would be so frustrated all the time because I couldn't do anything for them. And if I worked with a bunch of nuns at this hospital and one of them finally said, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be with them. That's still, I'm better at it, but it's still frustrating to not actually be able to do something to be helpful. And so I think all of us understand being in a situation where we feel helpless, maybe hopeless. Sometimes our helpless or hopeless feelings are for other people, which can sometimes even be the worst thing. It's one thing for yourself to feel helpless, but to watch someone you love be helpless and you cannot do anything for them, it's, it's, it's problematic. Moses, in this moment, has done, I think, something remarkable as the story goes, to take a people who had every reason to lose hope and get them to do what amounts to kind of some crazy stuff. I mean, painting blood over your doorpost, y'all, that's not normal. <laughs> and still, they do this because they have somehow kept the hope. For us, for me, Reading this story is not just about like a children's book turning the page to see what happens next. This is one of those moments with the institution of the Passover that I, I feel challenged to keep hopefulness when things seem hard. To understand that perhaps we don't have the power to fix what is wrong, and yet to hope for something better is perhaps our greatest challenge. And reading stories like this, I find very inspirational. That's all I wanted to say about that. Any thoughts or questions? All right then, let's get to the Exodus. All right, turn to pay, uh, page. Turn to verse 37. Yeah, I want to do verse 3. So chapter 12, 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them, and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. So we'll pause there. This story claims that 600,000 men plus children and a mixed crowd left Egypt. If that is literally so, we're talking about upwards of two and a half or three million people. You're thinking men, you've got wives and children and servants and household people and whatever. That today is a lot of people. Okay, I think two and a half, three million people walking out of town. Okay, that's huge. Back then, that would have been the population of Egypt. And so you're talking about a gigantic number of people. I simply want to note that the word thousand is one of those Hebrew words that is not typically meant to be literal, but it's meant to be a lot. So there were 600,000 people who left? Well, it could just mean a whole lot of people left Egypt. And I looked at, you know, many scholars say, well, it could have been 600,000 households. It could have been 600,000 total people. It could have been 600 a lot. I mean, you could literally read this as 600 a lot left Egypt. Well, that doesn't really do anything for us. So I think the message here is, it's a bunch of people who left Egypt, and they are now walking away. And they're not going, perhaps, the route that, they, that would make easier for them, which we're going to find out soon when they get to the Red Sea. But regardless, a lot of people left Egypt that day. We hear that they spent 430 years in Egypt. That number, again, is probably not literal because we see other numbers contradict that. In other places in Scripture, there's 400 years as referenced, 480 years as referenced, again, 430 years as referenced here. I think for us, we simply need to read a long time. If we think about holy numbers in Scripture, there are plenty of holy numbers. Three is a holy number, seven is a holy number, 12 is a holy number, and 40 is a holy number. 40 being a holy number, we'll see they wander the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. That 40, 40, 40 happens a lot. If it's 400 years, it's 10 times 40. And so in a sense, what's happening here is that the storyteller is saying it's been a long time, but it's been a long time on God's time. That's really what this 400 is likely meant to imply that they have been there in God's time. Because what is most important in this story? We can lose the forest for the trees. The forest here, the macro message here, is that God is in control. God is all-powerful. God has got you. For the Jewish people, there is a very clear historic record of God not getting them sometimes. They went into exile, just like in Egypt, and now they're telling their people it's okay. Because even though we are here, and we may not like it, God is still in control. We will get out in God's time. Judaism is about being in exile. Jewish identity is really rooted in the problem of being in exile. And the answer is remaining faithful to God. 
That is, in a sense, the summary of Judaism, right? What would be the summary of Christianity? The problem is sin, and the answer is salvation. We've got kind of a very fundamental rootedness in our traditions. And for the Jews, God being faithful to them is part of the big story. And so when we say 400 years, they have been in Egypt the amount of time they were meant to be there for God to now take them out. That is really the message of the storyteller here. Additionally, there is an interesting dynamic of more than Israelites actually leaving Egypt. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, There is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he has been circumcised. No bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The whole congregation of Israel shall celebrate it. If an alien who resides with you wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males shall be circumcised. Then he may draw near to celebrate it. He shall be rewarded as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. We'll pause there. What is happening here? They've left. They're gone. And still we're talking about Passover. We're still rooting ourselves and recalling the moment when the people did the thing they were supposed to do to be saved. They have saved themselves from Egypt, in a sense, by following what God asked Moses to have them do. There's an interesting dilemma they are acknowledging here. Imagine you are living in Egypt, and you're just a nice Egyptian person without any power. You are watching this junk happen. Remember how, how many plagues impacted the Egyptians, but not the Israelites? What if you could not drink or water your flocks because all the water is blood? And what if all those horrible frogs came up into your house, or the gnats, or the locusts, or the boils, or the whatever? At what point would an Egyptian say, I don't want any more of this? And I want to go figure out, like, it's not happening to them. How about we go over there? Now comes the Passover. There are non-Israelites who have been attracted to the Israelite community, perhaps for good theological reasons, probably because the plagues aren't happening over there. And so they're like, we're going to go live in Goshen, right? I'll make some bricks if I don't have to have boils all over my body. And so there are people here who are not part of the Israelite community who, when Pharaoh says you can go, are going with them. And so what happens if you are there and you want to be part of that community? We're finding out right here that non-Israelites can absolutely be part of the Israelite community, but what do we see? There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who reside among you. So in a sense, what's happening here is there is a clear path to expanding the community. You simply have to come in 
and follow the laws, which include things like circumcision. I mean, that's still the base, I mean, that's kind of the, uh, your ticket price to be part of the Israelites is male circumcision. It's emphasized here very clearly. And so everyone can come in if they follow these laws. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 13 because we see the establishment of a Passover festival that continues on in this thread. So chapter 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. This is the Passover festival that continues to this day. What has happened in this moment defines Judaism forever. And the people are welcome in. They are now on the move. They have left their homes. They were not able to take leavening. for, I don't even know what the point of the whole unleavened stuff is, except perhaps it implies or makes very explicit that they were rushed out of Egypt, and so they didn't have time to proof the dough. So you just, no yeast? I mean, I would have thought, like, I could have carried some dough in a bowl and let it proof on the road, but whatever. <laughs> um, they just, it's showing that they are in a rush and that they are moving fast. And there are people who want to come with them. And those people are invited so long as they essentially become part of the community and the community is defined in a particular way under a particular set of laws. That will change very soon. Once they reach Sinai, they will receive new laws. They will expand upon what they have to do to reciprocate God's grace. Because remember, we have covenants that have happened between God and humanity that ask nothing of humanity and then asked just a little of humanity, which is the circumcision. And now as we move to the Mosaic Covenant, which will happen at Sinai, much more is asked of humanity. There is much more of a balanced reciprocation. Love and grace and strength and power coming from God and then a humility and a worshipful praising that has to come from humanity to make that covenant happen. And that brings us to the end of today's study. Are there any questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's a good question. So online we have the question, why did Pharaoh let the Israelites take a bunch of stuff. 
including jewelry and gold and silver and all those things. Um, is it, and then the second part of that question is, are we actually just teeing up what will end up happening with the golden calf and other things like that moving forward? <laughs> I didn't read this section, um, but there are a couple of verses at the end of chapter 12 that essentially say the Egyptians wanted the people to go. The way the storyteller tweaks this is to say that the Egyptians almost paid off the Israelites to get gone faster. So they really wanted them gone. And if you can put yourself in the shoes of the Egyptians, they just lost a bunch of evil, right? Firstborns just died. And at this point, they're probably like, you, you got to get out of here because we can't take any more of this. And so what do you need? Can I, can I pay you? What do you need? You need some food? Apparently they can't take leavening, but they took lots of jewelry. So I mean, like leave the yeast, but take all the jewelry. Um, and so there's a lot of, of that kind of incentivizing the Israelites to go. And so the Egyptians are just throwing stuff at them to get them to leave fast. I logist, I cannot help but imagine the logistics of this exodus. Because you're talking about a huge amount of people, and not only are they going to have to take some kind of food, but they're going to have to take a bunch of jewelry and silver too? I mean, in what? And it weighs a lot. And so they're schlepping all of this stuff out into the wilderness when honestly, why? Why do they need it? But they do. And we will see, we just had a funny, um, I guess it was last Sunday, where in my youngest, um, she's a third grader, in their godly play class, they were talking about the story of Moses. Um, and because I talk about these things at home sometimes. Um, I note moments in scripture that are typically not read in church. Um, and so one of those moments comes, and we'll get there, where Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron is bored and pressured and gives in to the people and he takes all of this jewelry that they took out of Egypt and melts it down and creates the golden calf and they're dancing and they're singing and all the other stuff. And Moses comes down and he throws the tablets down and he gets mad and says, what are you doing? And we shouldn't do this. And then typically that's where we stop reading in church because what comes next is Moses grinds down the calf and forces all of the people to eat the gold as punishment for their lack of faithfulness. That doesn't necessarily play well on Sunday morning. And so, but my third grader knows that part of the story. And so they were with the Sunday school teachers and she said, but what about when Moses forced them all to eat the gold after he, you know, and the other children are like, what? You know, I thought, sorry, preacher's kid, causing, causing trouble in Sunday school. But yes, that's likely teeing us up to get to the place where the Israelites the story of the Israelites in the Exodus, I think is really a beautiful story of the human condition. How many times do we find ourselves feeling as if we are alone or isolated or God has abandoned us or bad things have happened and why us when God has been so good to us for so long in so many ways? And when we read the story of the Israelites, it's so easy for us to look at them and wag our fingers and think, look at what God has done for you. Why are you complaining again? 
except, man, that's us. And we are the kinds of people, who just human, where so many good things can happen and we can still feel as if we are due more, still feel as if the world has not been fair to us, still feel as if we've got something, some act to grind because we don't have enough or exactly what we want, when we want it, when we've got so much and God is so good to us, why then do we so easily find ourselves wondering where God is? God's always there. And we're going to see that the Israelites give us a hard mirror to look in about who we really are. All right. Thank you all very much. I will not see you next week. See you in two weeks. Happy Thanksgiving.